President Reagan ordered defensive action in response to the mining of USS Samuel B. Roberts. On the morning of April 18th, two Iranian oil platforms, Sasan and Siri, were destroyed by naval gunfire and demolitions. They must know that we will protect our ships, and if they threaten us, they'll pay a price. Evacuate the platform immediately. I repeat, evacuate immediately. Welcome to Sentcast, the official podcast of the United States Central Command, America's premier warfighting headquarters. Coming to you from Tampa Bay, Florida, with your host, Joe Buccino. Hey there, Joe Buccino here. Thanks for listening to Sentcast. One guest on this episode and one really big subject. That subject is the tanker war. This is an interesting story, an interesting element from U.S. military history. The Tanker War, if you're unfamiliar, was a protracted series of armed engagements, skirmishes at sea between Iran and Iraq, and that eventually involved CENTCOM, started in the early 1980s, went into the mid to late 1980s. This started against merchant vessels in the Persian Gulf and the Strait of Hormuz. This was an outgrowth of the Iran-Iraq War. So it's an interesting subject. We have been thinking about this for a very long time, and we have the perfect guest to lay this flat, to fully describe this. That's Dr. David Christ. He wrote the book on this subject, the 2012 book, The Twilight War, The Secret History of America's 30-Year Conflict with Iran. Dr. Christ has done a lot of scholarship, a lot of research, and he's written a lot about our relationship with Iran in the 1980s, about the tanker war, about our role in the Iran-Iraq war, and all that comes through in this discussion. So this is a very complicated, interweaving story. Sometimes it gets to be a dark story. This is geopolitical drama on the high seas. Big moments in this, a lot of action. We get into all of it. Who is our guest? Dr. David Christ, he's a government historian. He's the senior historian for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And he is a frequent guest here to our Tampa campus, the CENTCOM headquarters here in Tampa. And he's written this amazing book, this wonderful book on this subject. So that's it. Thanks for listening. You know, everywhere I go here in CENTCOM, everywhere I go in the headquarters, I stop people and I tell them about CENTCAST. I'm told it's getting obnoxious, so I'm going to stop doing that. But I want to thank you for listening to CENTCAST. So this is a great discussion and it's an important one. We do talk about here one element that we've talked about before, which is the formation of CENTCOM. It's part of this story. So here is my discussion with Dr. David Christ on the Tanker War. You are listening to CENTCAST, the official podcast of the United States Central Command, America's premier warfighting headquarters from Tampa, Florida. I wanted to talk to you about the Tanker War, which, you know, for, for the listeners that are not fully remembering, this was obviously the series of skirmishes on the high seas in the Persian Gulf in the mid-80s. So I reread the book and in going back through the material to understand the tanker war, you have to, at least in some part, understand the Iranian revolution. And then to understand that, I think you probably have to understand our relationship with the Shah. And then you go back to, you know, the Cold War and then even as far back as Nixon's twin pillar approach. So I don't know where to start. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I think you got to go back there. And at the end of the day, that's what drives the desire for U.S. forces directly in the region, which we're still living with. Mm -hmm. And the development of U.S. Central Command. I don't know. Where do we start? I think let's start with our relationship with the Shah under Carter, maybe. I think that's a good spot. So it seems like we felt like we were on a good glide path with the Shah. He was at that time in the mid 70s. You, know, you tell me if I'm wrong. We were pretty close with Iran in terms of uh, a partnership, in terms of an ally in the region, in terms of an attempt to maintain our dominance in the region and to maintain a foothold over the Soviet Union. 
Yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah. You know, the Middle East was not a place the U.S. really wanted to commit much military forces. Mm-hmm. We are very much a European and Pacific-focused military, yeah. still are. But the Middle East, due to the strategic importance of oil primarily and the fact that so much of the world's commerce flows through the Suez Canal, was a vital interest into itself. 1967, the British make the decision they're pulling all their forces out of the region, which is part of a larger consolidation and giving up their empire. So the U.S. relies on a strategy that focuses on, which, as you mentioned, the twin pillars. Mm -hmm. And these are two countries. One is Saudi Arabia, which has a lot of oil money and has a lot of credibility within the Islamic world as the keeper of the two holy cities. And the other one is Iran. And under the Shah of Iran, who's a dictator, but very pro-American. He also had a lot of oil and was very ambitious as far as being a regional leader. The U.S. allowed him to buy any sort of weapon he wanted short of nuclear weapons. So between the financial resources and the gravitas that Saudis provided, coupled with the military might of the Shah, it would provide a buttress to any Soviet mischief in the Middle East that might threaten Western access to oil. Mm. And that strategy worked up until the Shah got himself in trouble. He was, at his heart, sort of a foolish, sickly old man. He appointed general officers for loyalty, not competence. He rushed secularization within the country and created a popular backlash against more conservative elements. There's a lot of corruption. So there's a popular revolt against him and ends up overthrowing him. Uh, ends up in the process, of course, taking our embassy, Mm -hmm. uh, installs the current government, the Islamic Republic of Iran, and sort of a religious leadership that now runs Iran gets installed with the fall of the Shah. And this is a huge blow to the United States because our entire security apparatus within this vital area rested upon these two proxy states, if you will. And now perhaps the biggest of the two pillars is gone. Yeah, just to pause there so people can contextualize that maybe the chronology in their mind. So early 60s, the Shah looks to modernize, the secularize as you identified. Do you feel like maybe... A critical error was he tried to overreach with social change, and then that fueled this, I guess, theological revolution. Or was the revolution just more tied to things that we can understand, you know, basic economy, social changes, depression, things of that nature? Yeah, that's a good question. In reality, the people overthrew the Shah were a broad-based coalition mm-hmm. of Democrats, of communists, of mm. Shia religious individuals, and common individuals. It's hard to piss off everybody in your society, but the Shah managed <laughs> to find a way to do it. Yeah. For example, there's a payment that was made to the Iranian clergy. He decides to cut that off. The corruption's terrible. He tries to corner business markets that, that aggravate the bizarre class, the business class within the society. And as you said, he was pushing modernization on a particularly, and then may have worked in Tehran, but it wasn't selling in the hinterland of the country. And he was just deaf to these different forces. And then once they start having popular revolts and upheavals against him, he has sycophants around him as a military, and he sort of loses control. He doesn't have the ability to really respond well to a popular revolt. And his challenge, of course, is if he liberalizes too much, then it's just doing nothing but fueling the opposition to him. If he clamps down too hard and shoots a lot of the protesters, It's going to create very much a huge revolt, and that assumes he can rely on a conscript army to back him up in the first place. Mm. So, Mm. You know, as this is developing, New Year's Eve, 1977, Jimmy Carter, 39th president, very publicly says, and this is a quote here, Iran is an island of stability in one of the most troubled areas of the world. Iran, because of the great leadership of the Shah, is an island of stability in one of the more troubled areas of the world. This is a great tribute to you, Your Majesty, and to your leadership, and to the respect and the admiration and love which your people give to you. That seems like a irrational thing to think now, but I guess at the time, on some level, it made sense. 
Yeah. If you go back and read the intelligence reports at the time from 77, what the CIA and others were predicting, nobody saw this revolution coming. Mm. You know, in retrospect, probably we could see some of the genesis of it and things like that, but largely we missed it. You know, we had a huge intelligence presence in Iran at the time in 1977, but it was all focused externally. It was Mm -hmm. all focused towards the Soviet Union, not internally in the country. And one of the people I interviewed for for my book said most of the diplomats out of the American embassy had never even talked to somebody from Gom, one of the clergy. Mm-hmm. So that whole aspect of religious opposition was entirely missed by the embassy. Mm. And we should just point out here for the listener, because I didn't fully appreciate it at the moment, but the government of Iran, you know, we may think our government is a little complicated with, you know, the Senate. House of Representatives, the executive branch, Supreme Court. But the government of Iran seems to be particularly complicated in that you have the Shah, the Ayatollah, the council. There's a lot of parts and pieces that work. Sometimes they work at contrary means or contrary ends. Can you just maybe explain that? Just set that up a little bit briefly. Well, certainly in the case of the Shah, you know, there's an old saying in Iran that the power is based upon three different places, the Mm. Shah, the Shia clergy, and the Bazari class or the merchant class. Mm. And it's pretty much true to this day. You have Ayatollah Khomeini, who's sort of the spiritual leader of the Shia clergy class. He's decidedly hostile to the Shah, mostly because of his secular tendencies. He's pushed into exile and actually ends up in Paris, of all places, where he continues to foment unrest against the Shah. Of course, you have the Shah himself, who is equivalent of a king, so it's a monarchy. His son is an ear-to-well, for the most part, so he doesn't have a good person to pass it to. And then you have the Bazari, the merchant class, which then and now are still pretty powerful. And that was probably the last group the Shah had to hold on to, but some of his own internal domestic policies alienated them. So this sort of uh, triumvirate of different power bases, all two of the three coalesce against the Shah, Mm. and that's not a good position. If you want to go to today's environment, it's perhaps even more complicated because you really don't have the Shah. You sort of have a merger of the current supreme leader as kind of a Shah plus the religious head, which is unusual in Iranian history that you have the government and the religious leader in one individual. That's almost ahistorical. But then the bureaucracy they have created underneath that is even more complicated with the Majlis, which is a parliament that has power. You have the supreme leader, who is, as I said, the religious head and sort of the power of a monarch, although he's certainly no monarch. You have military power bases. You have supreme council. It's just a very diverse power base. At one time, there's a presidency. At one time, they had a prime minister during the 1980s. So it's even more complicated. It's an interesting evolution. It's almost like they did not like power concentrated in one guy in the Shah. So they developed a bureaucracy that was so diffuse, it was actually hard to function. Mm. Yeah. You know, what I love about the book, The Twilight War, is that it's going to be hard to get through this entire conversation because there's so many dramatic moments and so many big figures and so many critical decisions that were made that could have gone the other way and so many opportunities, I think, for an alternate history. But, you know, there's 1977 as the Shah's power is starting to unravel, or at least there's problems within Iran. There's disagreement within the Jimmy Carter White House about what to do about the Shah, about what to do about Iran and how to manage all this. That is absolutely correct. One of the uh, great ironies to anyone who reads current events and looks at Iran today is always disagreements within the U.S. administration about, Mm -hmm. you know, how you deal with Iran. Is it confrontation or is it accommodation kind of things? Jimmy Carter had a very similar issue. It was very divided within his administration on how to deal with this. Sidney Brzezinski, who was his national security advisor, was a hawk. He was privately trying to encourage, not so privately, encouraging the Shah to clamp down on the demonstrators. And even told the Shah in a phone conversation that if you have to shoot a bunch of them, the U.S. will look the other way. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you have... 
the Secretary of State, uh, a guy named Cyrus Vance, and the ambassador in Tehran, a guy named Sullivan, who were much more of the view that, hey, listen, we're watching the trends in this country. The Shah's days are numbered. These protests are going to overthrow him. He can't rely on his army, their conscript army. They're not reliable. And at the end of the day, the forces are going to overthrow him. So the sooner we do a deal that we cut our losses with the Shah and start positioning ourselves to make sure that whatever government emerges afterwards is most favorable to the United States, the better off we'll be. Mm. And so that's their take is get rid of the Shah, cut our losses and try to work out, try to find an opposition force there in there and try to influence them. Mm. And the problem is these two competing views, Carter couldn't make a decision. So he waffles back and forth between these two views. And a consequence, the U.S. government really doesn't do either one very well. And I think a factor weighing on this problem is that in the early 60s, I believe 1963, the Shah had exiled Ayatollah Khomeini. By this point, he's in Iraq. And I think the Iranian government, as I understand the sequence here, asks Iraq to exile him from Iraq. And that turns out to be a mistake, I believe. Yeah, that's a a huge mistake. You're absolutely right. He exiles Ayatollah Khomeini, who was his leading clerical opponent to Iraq. And in Iraq, he's, he's under the thumb of the Ba'athist government, which would become Saddam Hussein. And he was pretty silenced there. Then when they pressure him to get him out of Iraq, he goes to, of all places, Paris. And in Paris, it's a free and open press. And you can say a lot about Khomeini and his immediate followers. They were very, very media savvy. And they realized the whole IO effort and how you can use the Western media to get your anti-Shah message out. And they did it very effectively and just added fuel to the anti-Shah fire, particularly in the West. You know, and so amidst this 1979 coming in, you know, about 18 months coming up on two years after this, the Shah is sick and there is a decision rendered to invite him to the United States for hospital care for treatment. Right. It's interesting you pick up on that point because it's an important one. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows the Shah's gone. He's ill. The U.S. is actually trying to make some openings to Khomeini's forces, hoping to establish better relations and maybe having some success, at least limited. There's a, a series of talks going on behind the scenes. But when Carter, humanitarian gesture to a guy who had been an ally of the United States for decades and was now suffering from cancer and wanted to come into the U.S. for treatment, agrees to allow the Shah come in the United States, the opposition and the Khomeini's forces and, and others within Tehran don't see this as a humanitarian gesture, but are convinced this is a American plot and scheme with the Shah to install him back in power. Mm. And so what that quickly lead to is a direct assault and storming of the U.S. embassy in Tehran, which then leads to 52 American hostages being held for well over a year. And frankly, the defining moment in U.S.-Iranian relations that still shapes our views today, which is one of animosity and mistrust. Was there a reason the Shah could not get this kind of treatment in Tehran, this medical treatment? Yeah, they did not have the facilities in Tehran, and he was headed to Egypt for exile. Mm-hmm. He had actually flown out of the country. The popular revolt had overthrown him in February of 79. So he was briefly in Egypt in exile, and the medical facilities weren't there. I think he was headed to the Mayo Clinic. So there wasn't any other place for him to go. But the perception, and I spoke to a number of Iranians. There was nobody who was in Tehran, at least of the young people that were involved in the revolution, who believed that he was actually going there for medical treatment. Everyone mm-hmm. thought he was going there to confer with the Americans about how to plot and scheme to reinstall him. And so as you identified, this inflames the revolutionaries and it leads to the Shah's overthrown. There is a hostage crisis. This effectively, I think, sinks the Carter presidency, although there are some other social factors, domestic issues within the United States, but there's no way he could overcome that. This brings Reagan to the presidency. But really, up until that moment, I think it's important to remember that Iran is a key ally. And then after this moment, Iran is a confounding problem for Carter, Reagan, Bush 41, Clinton, Bush 43, Obama, Trump, now Biden. And so it's almost odd to think about the juxtaposition of this, the change from hugging tightly to Iran to maintain a presence in that region to the position we've had with Iran since then. 
It is pretty dramatic when one thinks about it, going from perhaps your most stalwart ally in the region, perhaps other than Israel, to your biggest opponent. And there's a lot of reasons for it. You know, the Iranians are inherently insecure, just based on their own history. And there's a lot of resentment of exploit, much like you see in China, of exploitation by the West. The U.S. helped foster a coup with the British in the 1950s that overthrew a prime minister who was more popular in retrospect than he was today, and it was in reality at the time, a guy named Mossadegh. So there's been some resentment amongst strong elements of the Iranians against American or suspicion of, of American intentions to them. And of course, once the Shah is overthrown, everybody saw the Shah as kind of the great evil, and who was the big backer of the Shah it was the United States. And so it shapes public opinion, still does. Mm. Um, and because of the seizure and holding of the U.S. embassy and the diplomats that Iran did and the public humiliation of the United States and everything, you know, the U.S. is surprisingly ahistorical. The one exception, in my view, seems to be Iran, where we have not gotten over that. So the animosity has been perpetuated a little bit by both sides. Okay, I guess the next element we'd talk about here is the Iran-Iraq War begins September 1980, and in the Iran-Iraq War, the United States picks the side of Iraq. That's absolutely true, yeah. And as you've accurately described, there's animosity. You've had the Iranian Revolution, the Shah's gone, and the Iraqi president, Saddam Hussein, who is a megalomaniac in many ways and not terribly strategically competent, decides to take advantage of what he thinks is the chaos of the Iranian revolution to seize the Iran's southern oil fields around Abadan, Khorasham, that area. So he can seize those oil resources, thinking that their army's in disarray and the government's in disarray and it's ripe to cut off a part of Iran. And you could not imagine a more bungled offensive than the Iraqis launched. And the war bogs down. Iran rallies to the battle cry of this war, becomes a huge nationalist fervor, and the war bogs down much like World War One and trench warfare, mm. with horrific slaughter on both sides, large-scale human wave assaults that are not decisive in any particular way. The U.S., as you said, is concerned a little bit, and the U.S. government's under a lot of pressure by Saudi Arabia and the Gulf Arabs to prop up Iraq for fear that if the Iranians win, the Iranian revolution will expand into the Shia regions throughout the Middle East and destabilize all these governments. So uh, the U.S. is concerned this incompetent Iraqi government and military doesn't lose. And so Reagan places, it's actually a very successful strategy called Operation Staunch run out of the White House that takes everything from Department of Agricultural subsidies to providing military assistance to Egypt and other countries to intelligence sharing with the Iraqis, all in sort of a holistic area to make sure that Iraq has the financial military resources and the intelligence to prevent them from losing the war. And then during the Iran-Iraq war, Iran starts going after the Iraqi ships in the Persian Gulf and Iraqi movement of goods in the Persian Gulf and Strait of Hormuz. And then this leads to the tanker war. Absolutely. Yeah. As we described it, you know, the Iraq war is a stalemate as all of World War One. So everyone's both Iraq and Iran figure out ways to indirectly pressure the other. So Iran exports its oil through Karg Island out of the Strait of Hormuz, the Persian Gulf and out by ship. So Iraq starts attacking Iranian oil tankers, probably a logical next step in this mm. conflict. Iran can't respond directly to Iraq who has pipelines, not ships, so harder to get to. So what they do is start attacking the Gulf Arabs that they see as principal financial backers, a lot of it under this Operation Staunch, of the Iraqi effort. So Saudi Arabia and Kuwait being the two biggest ones who are providing, by some accounts, as much as a billion dollars a month of credit to the Iraqis to buy weapons. So they start attacking, the Iranians start attacking primarily Kuwait, because they're a small country and much more vulnerable, they're shipping. So in 1986, this becomes pretty dramatic when 31 ships bound for Kuwait are attacked and damaged by Iranian air and naval forces. Mm. And so what this leads to is Kuwait coming to the United States asking for military protection of their ships. 
Mm-hmm. And we had mentioned at the outset that the Shah had been the bulwark of U.S. defense policy. When he's gone, the Reagan administration is actually looking for ways to introduce some kind of military force into the Middle East to get a toehold and provide stability in our own direct forces because we don't have the Shah anymore. So the timing of Kuwait's desire for military support provides the perfect excuse for the U.S. to begin looking at how to introduce and introducing military forces into the Middle East, because we had had almost none up to this point. And at a certain point, I don't fully understand this element of the story, but there is a question about reflagging ships, both from the Soviet Union and from the United States, and then a final decision is rendered there. Can you just explain that piece of it? Yeah, that's a little bit of Kuwait manipulation. Mm -hmm. You know, as I mentioned, Kuwait comes to the United States asking for us to protect their shipping from Iranian attack. Well, the United States, we're a pretty legalistic country. So this goes through the gonculator of lawyers and within the U.S. government. And it comes out there is real concern the U.S. cannot just unilaterally protect a third country's shipping. We have no treaty. We're not Mm -hmm. at war with Iran. So what they conclude is the best way of guaranteeing that is if Kuwait re-registers its ships under the Stars and Stripes. Mm. And so that's exactly what they do. They take 11 of their tankers and re-register them under the U.S. So there's American captain on them. There's a U.S. flag on the ship. And they got to pay U.S. taxes and everything else that goes with that. But legally, it was the best way for the U.S. Navy to then, there's no ambiguity. If it's an American merchant ship and somebody attacks it, we have every right right to defend it. Mm -hmm. So that was really a legalistic view. It takes a while. American bureaucracy can be a little bit slow in decision-making. So the U.S. was, I think, in March of 87 is when Kuwait first made the desire known for some kind of protection. Well, here it is in probably June, and the U.S. is still deliberating how we re-register these ships with the legal, you know, everything. So what they do is they go to the Soviet Union who was, of course, our adversary at the time, and asked if they will guarantee the protection of the ships. And, of course, the Soviets say, sure, we'll be happy to. This actually spurs the Americans to finally get off our behind and push hard for the whole re-register and re-flagging, and then the naval protection of these ships was the fear that the Soviets were somehow going to use this as a way of getting their own forces into the Persian Gulf. Mm. So it was a little bit of a interesting diplomacy and effort by the Kuwaitis to make the Americans speed up our decision. We think of Reagan as a kind of a powerful figure who projected an image of American might, particularly over Jimmy Carter, who seemed very weak and feeble in the face of the Iranian hostage crisis. So, you know, January 1986, the Iranian Navy seizes an American vessel in international waters in the Persian Gulf. What's the response there? What's the manner in which the Reagan administration, I guess, messages this or responds to this publicly? Yeah, when they seize that American ship and hold it briefly, the response by the Reagan administration is to begin convoying of all American flagships into the Persian Gulf. Mm-hmm. And they have a process that actually is very similar to what we did a few years ago when the Iranians were threatening these same things, That's right. which is basically a surveillance regime and making sure that there's forces nearby in case we pick up an Iranian coming close to one of the warships, we can respond to intervene and block them. That begins really the first convoy operation, and then when the Kuwaiti reflagging piece happens, it actually dovetails right into and just to an expanded operation. So, from Reagan's perspective, and I think you raise a good point on Reagan. This is a case, in my view, where he actually shows pretty remarkable resolution because there was not a lot of support to have any kind of convoying or escorting or any naval presence in the Persian Gulf at the time, especially in Congress. There's a lot of opposition to it. Where Reagan had been weak, in my view, dealing with the Iranian threat was dealing with their terrorism. Mm. And starting with the Iranian, which clearly was instigated by the Iranians, the bombing of the Marine barracks in Lebanon uh, killed 241 Marines. That was 1983, I believe? 83, right. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he kind of is the American Hamlet and ebbs and fates on whether we should respond, not respond. And bottom line is, despite a lot of tough talk, we don't do anything. And then there's a series of other incidents. There's a killing of a couple of USAID workers by Iranian surrogates, as we'd say today, attempted bombing of American facilities in Kuwait and attempted assassination of an American official in Bahrain, a whole series of them. 
And we really don't do a whole lot about it. And the problem with that is, which is something we still do today, is set and pattern Iranian calculations that they can do these terrorist attacks, or as General Votel would say, gray zone attacks, and the U.S. doesn't respond. And so Reagan's lack of resolution against particularly Beirut actually sets a trend and motion that we still live with today. When it came to their direct threat to U.S. shipping or naval shipping in the Gulf, he's looking for a reason to introduce military forces into the Middle East anyway. And he's actually pretty decisive there. So it kind of is a mixed bag. As this is happening, as we're aligned with Iraq and we're concerned about Iran in the Persian Gulf, there's two other things that are happening. One, I think, publicly known and the other is not publicly known. One is that there are American hostages held by Hezbollah, which obviously has a tie to the Iranian government, and were strangely selling missiles to Iran. (laughs) So, you know, again, this story is so like tangled and complicated and you do such a wonderful job laying it out in the book. But, you know, just help us make sense of those two components, because all these things are like fused together here. I'm not sure anyone quite understood it at the time. So if we're confused here, but it is complicated because, and it gets back to your opening question, in my view, Iran had been very important to the United States security in the region. Now it's a hostile regime. How do you deal with that? Mm -hmm. And so one of the efforts that comes up, it was a very quiet, covert effort at the time, is Reagan is looking for ways to find people within, you know, the Iranian government. They may be religious Shia, but they may not be so hostile to the United States or maybe more hostile to communists than they are to the West. So he starts and starts actually quite early in his administration trying to figure out ways to find people in the Iranian government we could work with and cultivate and maybe use them to help influence Iranian policy so they won't be so decidedly anti-American. So the Israelis approach us in 1985, approach uh, the national security guy named Bud McFarlane, and with a proposition of, hey, there's some people in Iran that we know are moderates that we can work with. And how about if we sell them some weapons they're, of course, engaged in this horrific war with Iraq, that that will ingratiate the Americans to them and actually increase their standing within the Iranian government because they're getting these key weapons and military assistance that will actually increase the power of their voices within the decision-making of the Iranian government. And then actually we can influence Iranian policy to be less anti-American. That's the premise and there were some Iranian moderates. Some of these guys were very big much later, too. So they, they were there. But it's a convoluted way because on one hand, you're supporting Iraq to keep them from losing the war. And now you're going to sell the other guys weapons, <laughs> um, the, right. the, the people you're trying to avoid winning the war, sell them weapons under the notion that this will influence decision making within the Iranian leadership. So it's kind of convoluted, but that was the thought. And so Reagan authorizes it, and his goal is we won't sell him enough weapons ever to be decisive on the battlefield, just enough to influence it. Hmm. You can debate whether that was possible or not, but that was his sort of his Rio stat on this. And so we do it. And so in a series of arms sales and things to the Iranians, it culminates in a couple of very weird meetings. If you can envision this, the National Security Advisor, a Marine Lieutenant Colonel, the, probably the senior guy at CIA for Iran, fly to Tehran for a meeting under the notion that this arms sales had swayed enough people that we actually have an opening to talk to them. So they fly to Tehran, show up largely without any preparatory work, which scares the hell out of the Iranians because all of a sudden they got a bunch of senior Americans in their country at a time when they're shouting death to America. Mm. And then it doesn't really come to much, but the Iranians reciprocate. And the same lieutenant colonel, a guy named Oliver North, who went to Tehran, who would become famous after this, you know, invites a couple of very senior Iranian Revolutionary Guard officers for a tour of the White House. So they fly to Washington. So it leads to these strange back and forth meetings that, of course, Reagan is hoping is actually going to lead to a breakthrough eventually. The problem, however, is there are some opponents within Iran 
to Khomeini who don't want an opening to the United States period, and they leak it, leak it into a Beirut newspaper. And this whole thing gets exposed, the secret dealings with the Iranians and selling them arms to a country that is shouting death to America, and we're trying to prevent them from winning a war. And then, of course, it turns out the dirty little secret is when the U.S. was selling these arms to the Iranians, we're selling it at a markup. So mm-hmm. we're actually, the U.S. government was making money off each of these arms sales. Mm-hmm. And so what Oliver North had is the idea that we'd funnel this money, this slush fund, if you will, into support the Contras or some pro-American insurgents we were supporting in Nicaragua who had a sort of a pro-Soviet government at the time, which was illegal. Mm. Well, and we should just say that the first part was also illegal because we had an arms embargo against Iran and the selling of arms to Iran was also illegal. So there's a couple of other elements to that. Yeah, piece. although interestingly enough, there was a waiver in that. Okay. You know, nobody's ever charged for violating the arms embargo and those kind of things. They eventually got them for lying to Congress because they lied repeatedly about doing any of this. One of the real problems was within the slush fund money. This wasn't a slush fund they could use with as they wanted. Mm-hmm. This was U.S. Treasury money. So it's not unaccountable for. And they were treating it as, well, you know, we sold this weapons at a markup. Now we can use this money for anything we want. Well, it doesn't work that way. Mm. And maybe another component of this is, <laughs> you know, again, this thing is like so layered, but there's seven American hostages held in Lebanon. And Reagan feels like the American people are really never going to forgive him if he passes up a chance to free the hostages. Yeah, that actually figures into, and that's an important piece that I left out of this whole convoluted arms transfer. Somewhere in the middle of all this arms, the decision is made that, you know, if we also sell them these weapons, we'll ingratiate themselves. They also have pressure or influence on Lebanese Hezbollah, who can then release these captured Americans. And it works initially. We give them, you know, a thousand tow missiles. Two of our hostages are released out of Lebanon. And so that then seems to reinforce that this is going to work. So we can get our hostages released from Lebanon by giving them weapons. And at the same time, we're ratiating and strengthening moderates who are going to be pro-American long-term in Iran. The challenge, of course, is, you know, in addition to it not working, the hostage piece you mentioned, what Hezbollah would then do is just take two more Americans. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. at the end of the day, we didn't actually decrease the amount of Americans that were held, what we did was incentivize taking more. Right. So none of this works the way that the Reagan White House wanted. They didn't really develop the influence within Iran. They didn't really have the effect in the region that they wanted at all. And they also didn't really affect Hezbollah the way they wanted to. Nope. It was an imaginative plan that at the end of the day didn't bear money fruit. Right. Okay. And then it seems like this could have consumed the Reagan administration in the same way that the Iranian hostage crisis consumed the Carter administration, but they weathered the storm and he left office with a very high approval rating. Reagan, just a different personality and very different person than Jimmy Carter. And also it became probably the biggest crisis on Reagan's watch, you know, his biggest That's right. Scandal, if you will. But at the end of the day, between the popularity for him and the fact that they could never link Reagan specifically to the diversion of the funds to the Contras, to the Nicaraguan rebels, which really was the probably the others were bad policy, but not necessarily illegal. The other one was the illegality piece. And they couldn't link Reagan to even knowing about that decision. So. At the end of the day, he weathers it, and you're right, and is not nearly as consumed by it as what Carter would have been. And so the tanker war continues in the meantime, in the midst of all this, and then there's this explosive moment, May 17, 1987, an attack at sea on an American frigate, the USS Stark. 37 American sailors are killed. And so if you can just set that moment up, because it's such a critical moment in this story. It is. It's at the beginning, and you had mentioned the seizure of the U.S. warship, and then we start kind of our own convoy operations. Yeah. It's obvious we're going to escort Kuwaiti tankers as well to protect them. We register those as American 
merchant ships and then that and so it's at the very beginning of all this stuff starting which will become a huge naval probably the biggest convoy operation we've done since world war ii and one of the biggest naval operations since world war ii so at the beginning, as this is all getting started, the USS Stark was up at a point up north of Bahrain, and an Iraqi pilot, and I mentioned the Iraqis were trying to attack Iranian tankers, flies down and inadvertently, because of incompetence, mistakes a U.S. frigate for an Iranian tanker and fires two Exocet and ship missiles into it, mm. frankly. It was a pretty dangerous area, and the ship was operating as if it's off the coast of Norfolk. Mm -hmm. There was no sense of being combat-ready at all on that ship. Mm. And so they were caught flat-footed, and 37 sailors die. Mm. And the, the impact on this is huge because... Reagan is just now making this decision to reflag these Kuwaiti tankers. Iran-Contra had just happened. I mean, in fact, the hearings were going on when all this was starting, uh, congressional hearings. And now 37 sailors are killed. So the amount of opposition in Congress and amongst the Democrats, and frankly, amongst a lot within the Navy, to what are you doing in the Persian Gulf? Get the hell out of there. You're committing us to a military mission that's just foolish. But actually, in fairness to Reagan, what he does do is he doesn't back down. And in fact, despite this loss of life, he continues with the plan to continue with these convoy operations. So it's a dramatic moment in a lot of ways. And it was a pivotal one that everything that would follow for the next year could have gone very differently, depending on how the president responded to that. I would also argue it was a real wake-up call for the U.S. Navy that just if you're operating in a dangerous area, you got to be postured for self-defense. Yeah. And they weren't. But there were some real, I think, critical, rapid decisions made in the moment after the USS Stark was struck that I think saved a lot of the crew. You tell those stories in the book, but there's a fire that spreads and then there's some action to try to jam up one of the holes in the hull of the ship. Yeah, no, the crew behaves extremely well once the ship is hit. And frankly, countries like Bahrain, who really show their utility and value as an ally and partner, occur there by, you know, flying out helicopters and flying a lot of the severely burned directly back to their own hospitals. It's a great story as far as individual heroism and the support that the U.S. military got and still does from countries like Bahrain and moments of crisis. Mm. The problem was all the decisions that led into it. Mm. And one, I think maybe just a personal note for you, obviously you wrote this wonderful book. You tell the story. You've done so much research. But I do think it's interesting for the listener that your father was the commander of U.S. Central Command at the time, the second commander of CENTCOM. He was, yeah. What do you remember about his thinking around this? He's a key decision maker, a key leader in a big flashpoint for the country at the time. Yeah, I think from his perspective, there's a lot of challenges. There is anyone who's a CENTCOM commander. One was heading into this unpredictable potential conflict with Iran, how these convoy operations are going to be governed. We hadn't really done it. We didn't have a military presence in the region much. So all the infrastructure that was going to be needed, the basing and this kind of thing to support it, none of that was in position. We didn't have air bases. We didn't have anything. So trying to get all the support structure in there was critical for him. So it was negotiations for AWACS to go into Saudi Arabia so we have some kind of air coverage over these convoys. All this stuff was working. He was trying to work in, a, and again, very new operations at the time. The other problem he had was the U.S. Navy specifically was largely opposed to this deployment, even more so after the Stark, because they saw it as a diversion of resources from the Pacific and the Atlantic in an area that they didn't want to operate in. Mm -hmm. And so, and the joint operations in the sense that we know it today wasn't really, was at its infancy. And so he would complain repeatedly. His biggest fight was never the Iranians. It was with the U.S. Navy and back in the Pentagon, who are constantly trying to undercut his operation and reduce forces and resources. So what's the American military response to the attack on the USS Stark? Well, we go ahead with the planned convoy operations. Mm -hmm. And so the Stark was in May. The first U.S. convoy begins in early July. And so it's a convoy of 
two, I think, two or three Kuwaiti tankers who are going to go up through the Strait of Hormuz up to Kuwait to pick up a load of oil. And there's a couple of American warships that guard them. And they're all, you know, the Kuwaiti ships now have an American captain and are flying the stars and stripes off their stern. Mm. So the plan goes ahead. And then I guess as a response to Iranian mining some international waters in the Persian Gulf at a certain point, I think it's April of 88. So coming up on a year after this, there's this massive military response. I think one of the largest naval offenses that we've had since the end of World War II. Leyte Gulf, yeah. Yeah, in Operation Praying Mantis. What happens is, and I think this is the important part for the listeners, is our very first convoy that we do in July one of these Kuwaiti ships hits a mine, an Iranian-planted mine. The Iranians, we, we piece it together afterwards, but near a small island called Farsi Island, cup in the northern part of the Gulf, they had laid a string of mines deliberately in front of the American convoy. And one of these ships hits a mine. Mm. What that does is start an entire massive expansion of this military operation. Mm-hmm. And it's a very unique operation. The way I would always couch this is think of this not as the Battle of Midway or a big Navy operation. Think of this as how you would guard an MSR running from Kuwait to Baghdad during the Iraq insurgency. Mm. Because what the Iranians are trying to do is they don't want to take us on directly because they know they're not strong enough. But they're trying to try all sorts of asymmetrical attacks to disrupt our convoy operations with the ultimate goal of driving the Americans out of the Gulf. Mm-hmm. and stopping the whole support for Kuwait. And so they do this through naval mines, as you mentioned, which they lay a lot of. I think they lay 91 mines across the Gulf and all very directed at where they think U.S. warships or these convoys are going to be. And the U.S. responds with a very aggressive ISR effort that involves helicopters and you know all of our ISR assets we had to try to monitor and pick up where Iranian either speedboats might be coming out to lay mines or attacking merchant ships combined with warships strategically positioned plus Navy and Air Force aircraft as strike capabilities. And then a whole, well, today we'd call it Yasodaf, Joint Special Operations Task Force operating up in the northern part of the Gulf off of converted oil barges huge big oil barges, which we deployed SEALs and Task Force 160 Little Bird helicopters and maybe patrol boats specifically to keep the Iranians from doing surreptitious mining or any sorts of attacks on a very vulnerable part of the convoy route. So all this gets stitched together in a huge campaign. It's very unique. And of course, you mentioned it culminates in many ways in April of 88, about a year after it all begins, one of the mines actually finds a target. In this case, it's an American frigate and nearly sinks it. And then the U.S. responds with a pretty significant military retaliation that sinks two big warships and seriously damages several Iranian aircraft. And it's a kind of a day-long skirmish in the Gulf against U.S. warships and helicopters and aircraft against Iranian speedboats and mine layers. So many dramatic scenes at sea. And I didn't know all these stories. I guess I probably should have. But, okay, so April 14th, 1988, this leads into Praying Mantis. As you mentioned, USS Samuel B. Roberts, a Navy frigate, hits a mine. And then there's this, you know, really, I think, valorous, urgent fight below deck to save the ship. Can you just go through that? Because it's, it's so it's so vivid in the book. The ship is moving along. It's actually going to pick up another one of these uh, Kuwaiti convoys. And there's a lookout in the front, and he spots a you know black object in the thing, which turns out to be a mine. And so the ship is actually trying to back out, back down its wake to get out of this minefield when it inadvertently hits another one midships. And it blows a huge hole in the side of the ship. And it is a story of real heroism. The captain was a guy named Rin at the time. He was a very charismatic, just a great leader. And he goes down in this one section of the ship and sees all these guys were taking off their clothes, jamming it into cracks into the bulkhead to oh keep God. the water from coming into this one section they're in. And he tells them there's about 10 guys in there. He says, listen, if this bulkhead gives way in this compartment you're in, floods, the ship's going to sink. And he said the chief or one of the sailors down there just looks at him and said, ah, don't worry, you know, Captain, we've got this. And so then they turn on a 
Journey song on their boombox, for those of you old enough to remember those, and start playing this Journey song as they start doing everything they can, including stripping off their clothes to, to use as padding to keep this bulkhead from giving way and keeping the water came in. Rin came out of there, to, went up to the deck, determined that he was never going to see any of those guys alive again. But it worked, and they managed to secure it, and then some smart engineering that figured out where the fires were on the ship, and they saved the ship. It really is a dramatic story, and it's amazing, amazing nobody died. I think there were 10 wounded on the ship from the mine strike, but nobody was killed. And it really was just uh, good training and good initiative and good heroism and people thinking through the problem. Samuel B. was a well-trained ship anyway, so it was remarkable that nobody died or the ship didn't sink. It really is. And what's the response to that? So Praying Mantis is this massive retaliation. What's the response there? What's the Iranian response or how does that manifest in the tanker? Yeah, that's a good question because the incriminations, first of all, we largely destroy the operational piece of what's left of the Iranian Navy. And the recriminations are within the Iranians. Leadership is pretty severe. And so what they do is they back down and do not do any additional mine lane because they don't want to induce another big American attack. And it happens to, interestingly, and it's pure coincidence, but the Iranians don't think of that, don't think it is to this day. The Iraqis happen to launch a big offensive in their war almost at the same time as Praying Mantis. That actually is a decisive defeat for the Iranian ground forces. So from Iran's perspective, they have just lost on the ground against Iraq and now have lost in the sea against the Americans. And so it doesn't lead to the eventual ceasefire, but it goes a very long way to starting to convince the Iranian leadership that they're not going to win this war and they need to have a ceasefire. I think I forgot about this until I read the book, but, or maybe I never knew, I don't know. But July 3rd, 1988, the United States Navy shoots down an Iranian airline civilian airplane, Iranian Air Flight 655, the Vincennes cruiser is in Iranian waters, and I guess potentially acting overly aggressively. There's, again, just like the incident you talked about with the Exocet missiles, there's a series of, I think, missteps here. And I don't know if it's almost the opposite of complacency here, but there's miscommunication within the crew. And it seems like there's seven, eight, nine, ten things that if one of those decisions went another way, that you avoid this tragedy. Yeah, those are, I think, really pretty insightful comments. The bookend of this whole tanker war period are the Stark at the very beginning Mm. and the Vincennes shooting down the Iranian Airbus at the very end. And both kind of linked because the Stark was complacent and was attacked unprepared. The Vincennes was overly prepared and overly aggressive looking for a fight. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can money morning quarterback on both captains, but there is a direct linkage between these two. And what happens is in July, there's the Vincennes essentially, and there's some things going on on the Gulf. The Iranians are trying to attack ships and trying to avoid the American ships and kind of a cat and mouse game. So the Vincennes goes up into Iranian territorial waters, which is actually against the ROE at the time, and instigates a fight with a couple of these Iranian small boats. And if you can picture your bass boat or a John boat or a speed boat you have with a rocket launcher and machine guns on it. That's essentially what the Iranians have. And when you have a swarm of them, they can do some damage. And so it goes up, picks a fight with it. So it starts a gun battle with them. And they're moving at high speed. He's trying to shoot them with his forward five-inch gun. And in the middle of this fight, a plane takes off from Bandar Abbas Airport, which is a dual military civilian airfield, takes off. And about the best way you can see the systems as they did recreated afterwards were accurate. The radar reported this thing kind of going at a steady climb up and largely in the middle of the air traffic scheme. But the Navy officer reading the radar, I think it's because the ship is banking left and right. They're going at high speed in the middle of a gunfight. Misreads it all and panics and starts saying that we've got a plane that's descending towards them. Compounded by, and this is, you're right, on a series of errors, 
when the radar first interrogated this target, it, what it did is it picked up an Iranian F-14 on the ground, and they misidentified the F-14 on the ground and labeled this aircraft taking off as an F-14. You don't know the characters, and never really reinterrogated it to verify that. So uh, a series of blunders, both of human error, really, creep into this and make the captain convinced that it was an F-14 of the Iranians that was coming down to attack him in the middle of his engagement with the Iranian boats. And so he fires a missile and shoots down the airplane by mistake, kills 290 people. Mm. And it's a significant event for both, a significant event in addition to, you know, the obvious tragedy of it. And the Iranians to this day are convinced that U.S. shot the plane down deliberately, that we knew it was a civilian plane. We did it to pressure them to accept a ceasefire with Iraq and in the war and in their attacks at sea, and that we were willing to go to great lengths of killing civilians to do that. And they absolutely believe that. And it was compounded by an error because the U.S. Navy gives the captain of the Vincennes that shoots it down a guy named Captain Rogers, a legion of merit for the end of his tour. Mm. And mm. so the Iranians will argue you don't give a medal like that to a guy who just killed 290 people by mistake. Mm. Well, you do if you kind of understood the Navy politics at the time, but or perhaps giving out too many medals. So they were convinced it is. Mm. But it did have the impact. I mean, that was perhaps the straw that broke the camel's back, and Iran ends up agreeing to a ceasefire, as Ayatollah Khomeini said at the time, drinking the poison chalice of having to agree to essentially a defeat against Iraq, which he did not want to do. Yeah, up until the fact the Iranians shot down a Ukrainian airliner during our last little engagement in 2020 with them, it was really a black mark on the U.S.-Iranian relations. It is, I think, interesting. You know, you mentioned the Legion of Merit, but this seems so, no pun intended, stark. The American government, the American Navy did support Rogers. And I think there was maybe a message that he fired first as opposed to the Stark, which got hit first. Yeah. Well, that's why they gave him the Legion of Merit, is the Navy was trying to reinforce the notion of hostile intent Mm. and the ROE that you don't have to take the first shot. Mm -hmm. And so that was what they're trying to emphasize and why they did it. The worst thing the U.S. government did was we largely covered it up and lied about it. The vice president goes up to the U.N. and gives us talk on what happened. We deliberately say he wasn't in Iranian territory waters, the ship when that happened. We try to say it's way off the center line of the air traffic scheme. It wasn't at all. And then what happened in the ship and misidentifying, all that was left out. So we're trying to implicate the Iranians to make, see, you guys are irresponsible by sending a civilian aircraft in the middle of a fight that you, Iran, were responsible for. In reality, we instigated the fight, and then we covered up the whole location of it. And this gets exposed four or five years later, which doesn't make the United States look very good. And the Iranians, of course, for years thereafter, would seize upon that. But you're right. It's what the Iranians figure out of why you would give a medal to a guy who killed 190 people, because at the end of the day, it was designed to reinforce preventing what happened to the Stark. And as you write in the book, this is the terrible climax to the tanker war. And so I guess it ends on a tragic note, really. Maybe there was no other way for this to end. It was unfortunate. You mentioned my father. He was uh, static when the first news he got was that we just shot down an Iranian F-14. And it's like, all right, guys, we know we're putting the pressure on him. Until, of course, obviously, the events come across that an hour or two later when they realized, no, it wasn't. So it ends up, from the U.S. perspective, this entire operation, I mean, if you take out the obvious black marks of the Stark at the beginning and the Vincennes at the end, it is a very successful American operation. We largely shut down the Iranian efforts to interfere with Gulf shipping. It establishes the United States military in the Gulf permanently. It reinforces working relationship with Gulf Arabs that we really didn't have before that, of course, are critical to what we do today. It's a confidence-building measures with them that the U.S. is a reliable ally. We'll stick it out despite Starks and Vincennes. The U.S. remains committed to their defense. And at the end of the day, it overcomes a lot of the internal opposition that the U.S. Navy had, these kind of joint operations. And frankly, 
it provides, I think, a very interesting blueprint, despite changing technology and everything on both sides, about how you deal with kind of an asymmetrical threat that Iran presents and others when they're trying to keep, as General Votel would say, a gray zone conflict against you and inflict damage below a certain threshold and how you can counter that using all elements. And in this case, it's primarily a maritime threat, but it works in other ways how you kind of integrate a joint campaign to counter that. You are listening to Sendcast, the official podcast of the United States Central Command, America's premier warfighting headquarters from Tampa, Florida. So let's leave it there in terms of the tanker war. We covered a lot of ground, but one final closing note. David, you have so much insight into a subject that we discussed often on this podcast, and that's the formation of U.S. Central Command, this organization. You know so much about the rise of CENTCOM and the linkage to Iran. Yeah, I mean, it certainly is. And it's, as you said, it's very much linked to the Iranian story Mm -hmm. and the fall of the Shah and how do we deal with the Middle East. And the original concept President Carter had, you know, and again, especially after the fall of the Shah and we're concerned about how do you guarantee security in the Middle East, you know, has an idea of a rapid deployment joint task force which is a JTF that would come from the United States and deploy in a contingency to the Middle East. So that's the first idea, and that beats around to about 1981 or so, early in the Reagan administration. And then the Reagan administration, really, the Secretary of Defense Weinberger, doesn't like the RDJTF. His concern, and this is a direct quote from him, you have the most volatile part of the entire world that's vulnerable. It's Achilles' heel to the United States with its oil reservoir. And it's really a boundary between two commands, between what we had in the Atlantic, between UCOM and Pacific Command. And it wasn't really a clear delineation of who really had what authority on what area. So he thought it was a recipe for real problems. I think he was right. So the idea was that the RDJTF headquarters would then morph into a new unified command, which would have responsibility for the Middle East. And so he sets out to build that, and it gets established in, I think, January 1983. It becomes the new unified command for the Middle East to address this whole issue of, you know, this critical area that was kind of ungoverned space for the U.S. military, for lack of a better way of saying it. And actually, it's, I think, been quite successful. It was kind of controversial when it was established, but I think uh, it turned out to be pretty prescient in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, look, you've given us a lot of your time. I do feel like we could talk to you for another three hours and we'd still be unwinding this story. There's a lot to cover. It oh is, it is oh a God. complex period of time in a region that, you know, any of the listeners who's ever spent any time there understand that it's a complex area. Yeah. And, and again, if you want the full component of the story and the broader sweep, then as it continues into our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, the Twilight War is the book. It, all this is in there. So look, sir, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for talking to us, and really just thanks for your scholarship on this really important issue. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. Okay, that was it. Not much more I can add to that. We covered a lot of ground. Read The Twilight War. I recommend it. Dr. David Christ, great episode, great discussion, and thanks for listening to Sentence.